Let's pray for God's blessing on our time in his word, please. Father, we thank you for these divine words of eternal life that you have breathed forth for your church and given to us as a precious gift, um, as a treasure trove of, of truth to replace our natural errors that we inherit from Adam and because of our rebellious and fallen natures. We pray that you would help us to see the light of these passages and to receive them into our hearts and practice them in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Three scripture readings uh, this evening. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5 is the first one. As we talk about the precious truth of Christ alone, of solus Christus was the Latin phrase that the Great Reformation used, Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 is our first scripture reading. 1 Timothy 2, 5, this is God's word. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Then turn to the left there to Acts 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts 4, 12. This also was God's word. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then one last one to the left there, just a little bit more to John 14, verse 6. And when we get to our biblical section, this is where we'll start, so just keep your Bible there on John 14, 6. This is God's word. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. May God bless the reading of his holy word. In his excellent book, Mary, Another Redeemer? Question mark. <clears throat> Dr. James White wrote this. <clears throat> Pardon me. It caught my eye. A small booklet tucked in the fold of a chair in the corner. I normally wouldn't have seen it, but it was sticking out just enough to be seen. I picked it up. The blue and white cover bore the title, Devotions in Honor of Our Mother of Perpetual Help. I thumbed through the booklet, scanning a few of the prayers it contained, and my eyes caught a line about, quote, my eternal salvation, end quote. So I backed up and started from the beginning. This is what I read. O Mother of Perpetual Help, Thou art the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us, miserable sinners. And for this reason, he has made thee so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful, that thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to thee. Come then to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. In thy hands I place my eternal salvation. And to thee do I entrust my soul. Count me among thy most devoted servants. Take me under thy protection, and it is enough for me. For if thou protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all hell together, nor even from Jesus, my judge himself, because by one prayer from thee he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation, I may neglect to call on thee and thus perish miserably. 
Obtain for me then the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O mother of perpetual help. And White continues, at first I could not believe what I had just read. So I ran back through the first, the last few lines. Was this prayer really saying that the petitioner did not need to fear his or her sins, the devils, and Jesus? That's what it said. I shook my head in disbelief. A few years later, I found myself in a radio studio in Boston, Massachusetts, doing a radio discussion with a former Protestant turned Roman Catholic named Jerry Matatix. The topic was Mary and the Saints. Mr. Matatix and I were scheduled to do two public debates at Boston College over the course of the next week. But today we were live on the air, taking calls on the subject of prayers to Mary and the Saints. As I packed for the trip, I found the little blue and white booklet and decided to bring it along. Now I reached into my bag and brought it out. Surely, quoting this prayer would bring a strong reaction from Mr. Matatix. Surely, he'd deny that such a prayer is proper and that the people who had written it were just going overboard in their piety. The talk show host involuntarily gasped as I read the last few lines. And as I put the booklet down, I looked toward uh, my opponent, Mr. Matatix, waiting for the expected reaction. The host likewise turned to Mr. Matatix. He was quiet for a moment. And then he spoke and said, Mr. White, I can only hope that someday you too will pray that prayer. I want to be as clear as possible about things like this. The person who prays that prayer is lost. The person who prays that prayer doesn't know Christ. Anyone who would ask someone, anyone, I don't care who it is, an angel, an apostle, or Mary herself, to save them from Jesus, doesn't know Jesus. Cannot possibly know Jesus. Who is the redeemer of God's elect, our catechism asks. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And I'll confess to you, the first time I ever read that, I was in my early 20s, I was new to the Reformation, and I wondered, why did they say the only redeemer? I mean, the question is, who is the redeemer of God's elect? I would expect the answer to say, the redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the word only there? Well, I think you're going to see this evening why. Why did, did our Reformation forefathers think it was necessary to put that word sola, only? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider the first three great solas of the Reformation, sola fide, justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God is scripture alone. And then this morning, sola gratia, grace alone. Man is not merely made savable by the grace of God, but is unconditionally elected, irresistibly called, and then justified by grace alone. And now this evening we look at solus Christus. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that anyone comes to the Father and is through Jesus Christ. And there is salvation found in no one else than the Lord Jesus. The medieval church that Luther inherited was filled with additional helps towards salvation outside of Christ. Mary and the saints, relics, pilgrimages, masses, purgatory, indulgences, works, and a thousand other things were added to Jesus to help bring about salvation. When Luther discovered from scripture that there was only one way of salvation and only one who could save and only one who would save, namely Jesus, he laid hold of that truth and never let go of it. 
Everything alongside of Jesus and everything in addition to Jesus must be discarded from the saving office. And that's why our Westminster forefathers, the, the Westminster theologians, stated the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the very issue that Luther himself was facing. They, they lived in an age of add-ons to the Lord Jesus for salvation. Aren't you glad that we've all put that behind us now? Therefore, they didn't simply state the redeemer of God's elect is Jesus. They said the only redeemer of God's elect is Jesus. Rome and all forms of pseudo-Christianity, false Christianity that's out there, uh, they'll, they'll agree, they'll say, oh yeah, 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 Jesus is our redeemer. But they'll back away when we say he's the only redeemer. He's the only one who can save us. This is the clear teaching of God's word. Look there at uh, John 14, 6 there in your Bible. Familiar passage, many of you I'm sure can recite it from memory. But there's always more there uh, than meets the eye when you look carefully, slowly, and in depth at something. Listen to it again there. Jesus said to him, to Thomas there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here we have the beginning of what is referred to uh, by commentators as the upper room discourse, John 14 through 16. Uh, and John's gospel is unique in the whole Bible. It's got teaching in it that's, that's unique to that gospel. It's our Lord's detailed instructions on a number of key issues that the apostles needed to understand. The main focus being the glorious promises that he's leaving to prepare a place for all his children to live for eternity. Uh, he also talks about how he's the only way to be saved and know the Father. He speaks of their need to love one another. He speaks of being the source of, of, of all the fruit that we bear. John 15, he is the, the vine, we're just the branches. That if they're loyal to him, he promised them, uh, you're going to be bitterly hated by the world. Trust me, you're going to be hated. If you teach what I'm telling you, you're going to be despised. You're going to be killed. They're going to murder you. And thinking that they're glorifying God doing it, he told them that. He also does more teaching about the nature and, and the, the teaching ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit than any other place in the Bible is in John 14, 15, and 16. The Spirit's going to come and convict the world of sin. He's going to guide them into all truth. He's going to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. But the context of our statement here in John 14, 6, here at the very beginning of the upper room discourse, it's one of the most beloved passages in the whole Bible. Look at John 14, verse 1. Back up just a few verses to verse 1. You see it? Do not let your heart be troubled. You know why he told him that? Because at the end of John 13, he said, I'm leaving. He told them, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you guys can't come. And they were devastated by that. They didn't understand, what's he talking about? What, what does he mean? I thought we we're about to set up the, the glory days of David and Solomon. What do you mean you're leaving? And he's telling them this. Here's his, his answer to their sadness. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then his answer is there in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. With all the teachings of man's religions, the way to whatever the goal is, if it's enlightenment or 
moksha or nirvana or heaven or paradise or whatever. It's always a list of works or a formula of rituals or practices or something like that. That's the way that you get enlightened or get to wherever you're supposed to be headed. The truth is entirely unique. The way to heaven, to the Father, to know the one true God is through faith in a person. It is not good works. It's not rituals. It's not through ourselves in any way. It's through reliance upon, trusting in, believing in the person and work of someone else, namely Jesus. And believing in and trusting in nothing else. He is the only way. That's why he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And Thomas asked that question, how do we know the way? How do we know the way? The, the way where? To, to the Father. To go where you're going, to heaven, to a happy afterlife. And Jesus answers this question not by laying out seven easy steps or a certain path or a list of rituals or do's and don'ts. He simply says, Thomas, I am the way. The way to God is through a person. Faith in a person. Trusting in a person. Not through anything alongside of him or in addition to him. Jesus identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father. Any other way proposed by men, by definition, is false. Jesus is the truth, he said, of the matter of how to be saved, how to be reconciled to God and go to heaven. All other ways proposed by men outside of Christ bring about death, eternal death. And Jesus is the life. And that only his person and the saving work that he's going to bring about can rescue us from death in eternal judgment, and give us eternal life. I am the way, I am the truth of the matter, I am the only way to have eternal life. There's just no middle ground with him. He forces you to a decision. You either believe him or you don't. And he ends verse 6 with that great, beautiful little sentence. No one comes to the Father but through me or except through me. Anyone who dies trusting in something other than Jesus will not come to the Father. Anyone who trusts in something alongside of or in addition to Jesus will not come to the Father. They will not go to this glorious place that he's gone to to prepare a place for his disciples. Jesus is emphatic and he's clear. Why does he add that little phrase there at the end? No one comes to the Father but through me. Here, please listen. Because no one other than Christ can give a sinner what they do not have, desperately need, and could never earn. And that is a perfect, all-sufficient atonement for their sins and a perfect righteousness to be clothed in so they can be justified before God on the last day. No one else can give that to you. And you either believe that what he did is enough to make it happen or you don't have him. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian science cult, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, a thousand other cult and religious leaders, they can't give you any of that. That's why he says no one comes to the... It's not rah, rah, we're, we're right, everyone else is wrong. It's what you have to have, no one else can give you but me. So you either get it from me or you don't get it anywhere. And if you think it's me plus someone else and you clearly don't understand that what I can give you is sufficient, God will not tolerate that kind of an insult to his son's work. Jesus and Jesus alone can pay for your sins. This is why he says no one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to see the way to heaven, you want the truth of God in this life, and you want life and not death at the end, 
Put your trust and your faith in Jesus and in nothing else. Christ alone, solus Christus. Now turn over to Acts 4.12. Let's look at this one. Another Christ alone passage, a clear Christ alone passage in God's word. Acts 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And now back up to verse 1. I want you to see what led up to this here. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Look at verse 2. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name have you done this? Healed the person that was there. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, now reflect on this. Verse 12 is a further explanation of what is said in the previous verse, in verse 11. The stone which the builders rejected and had crucified was Jesus. Now, who are these builders? It's all the people that are mentioned in verses 5 and 6. Look at who's there. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. They're rulers, elders, scribes, and it says... Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. You might recognize all these people. These are the people that were there, that put him on trial, that condemned him to be crucified, that plotted and schemed. And then these other guys, John and Alexander, they're all of high priestly descent. He's talking to the people that made sure Jesus was killed. Verse 12 is a direct, a forceful, and no doubt a highly offensive, savage rebuke of these people. The congregation, consider again who's listening to Peter say this. These are the people that put Jesus to death, that made sure he was tortured and crucified. These are the very men who asked a Roman pilot for a custodian guard of soldiers to guard Jesus' tomb. Remember how they said that to Pilate? They said, we remember when that deceiver was still alive. He said he was going to rise again. So go guard the tomb and make sure it doesn't happen. These are also the people who paid those Roman guards to lie because they were eyewitnesses of a resurrection themselves. These are the guys that Peter's talking to. And he's telling them, this man that you guys did this to, he is the only source of salvation in the world. And the prophecy that said, you builders are going to reject the chief cornerstone, you fulfilled it. That is God talking about you. Amazing. It's such a a direct attack on them. Rulers and elders of the people, he says. 
It's directed at them, at these men who were guilty of murdering the sinless Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah of the world. When Peter healed that crippled beggar right outside the temple in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 3. In that address, Peter said to the huge crowd that was there after the man was healed, he said this to all those people there. This is what got them in trouble. Peter said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. This holy and righteous one, this prince of life, was the one they had all disowned. We don't want him. His blood be on us and our children. What, what, what do you want me to do? Pilate says, what do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him. And who was stirring him up to say that? These elders, these chief priests, all these people, Caiaphas, Annas, the whole gang. And here in Acts 4.12, Peter's telling them, There's no salvation anywhere else. Any of you guys want to go to heaven? you got to believe in him. The Savior and servant of the Lord have been condemned, rejected, murdered. They killed the prince of life. They they wanted Barabbas instead. This one, Jesus of Nazareth in Acts 4.12, is the one in whom alone salvation from sin can be found. And Peter delivers that to them. I think about how much light these men had sinned against. They had sinned against so much light. You know, some people die and they've never heard the gospel. Others die having heard it and they reject it because they're in love with their sin and they hug that fire to their chest their whole life and it kills them in hell. Others actually saw and witnessed the great miracles and teachings of Jesus and they went on to hear the preaching of the apostles themselves and they listened to the the testimony of the eyewitnesses of his resurrection and they still rejected Jesus because they also were too in love with their sin. But these men, these experts in the law, these Pharisees and scribes and the elders and the rulers of the people, these men to whom Peter is saying this, they were, as John Calvin described them, quote, twice damned, end quote, because they not only saw and interacted with and listened to Jesus, they devoted every fiber of their souls to killing him, opposing him, and erasing his memory from mankind. Is it possible for anyone to sin against more light than they had? And here, the newly restored Peter. What what a difference we see in Peter now. Just a short time ago, he was calling down curses, denying even know who Jesus was. I don't know who you're talking about. And here he is with such brave, courageous boldness, telling these guys, you guys murdered the Prince of Life and their salvation and no one else. And here's what we need to learn right now. Here's what we need to learn right now. This exclusive claim to the saving office of Redeemer by Jesus and by Jesus' true followers when we do evangelism, it's just as repulsive to people today as it was when Peter preached these words. People don't like this idea. We're right and everyone else is wrong. Dear congregation, anyone else who ever hears this, we all need to understand this. There really is salvation in no one else. It can't be found anywhere else. There is no list of things that you can do to earn salvation. There is no ritual you can undergo to get it. There's no list of check boxes you can accomplish. You need to abandon all hope, all trust in yourself, your works, religious ideas, rituals, whatever, because there is salvation 
in no one else, said Peter, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's an absolute statement, an absolute truth claim. You either agree with him or you don't agree with him. Jake Russell Machen, I keep thinking about that man. I've been learning so much more about him and reading, rereading some of his books and just trying to understand the way he fought against the rise of apostasy in his denomination. As early as 1925, 1925, Machen wrote these words about the Presbyterian Foreign Board of Missions in the PCUSA. Listen to his words. He says, it is not now contrary to my conscience to give to our foreign board, though I cannot say I give with much enthusiasm. He said, it's not a violation of my conscience yet to give them money, but I don't give that money with a whole lot of enthusiasm. Eight years later, that changed. Eight years after that, his, his tone changes. And Stephen Nichols, his great biographer, wrote this, quote, By 1933, however, his conscience would no longer sustain mere apathy. At the center of his shift is the report, produced by a large group of laity with the support of the Presbyterian Church and six other denominations and funded by John D. Rockefeller, entitled Rethinking Missions. A layman's inquiry after a hundred years. And this is a treasure trove, a, a trove of pluralistic thought. The report advocated a paradigm shift in missions premised on the notion that Christianity is not the exclusively true religion. So they have a committee and the committee comes back. Here's their report. We just discovered Christianity is not true. It's not the only truth out there. Consequently, mission work should be more syncretistic, eschewing imperialistic attitudes about Christianity and proselytizing in favor of more accommodating attitudes toward other religions and their adherents. As Machen summed it up, the new task of missions was to seek the truth, not present it. The report inflamed the conservatives and it also brought the simmering controversy in the Presbyterian Church to a full boil. You want to know why Machen founded what he called the Independent Board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions? It's because he wanted to have missionaries that were actually worth giving money to. You know, that still exists today. The IBPFM, the Independent Board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions. Folks, let me warn you. If we accommodate culture by getting rid of certain things from various sin lists in Scripture, you know what I'm talking about. And we accommodate culture by ordaining women deacons. I mean, we don't want to be misogynistic, right? I mean, good grief. And we accommodate culture by softening biblical gender roles. And we accommodate culture by becoming wokish. I warn you, I warn myself, I warn anyone who ever hears this. Listen, please. If you accommodate the world in these ways, you will surely lose everything else in time. And there will be no gospel left to preach to anyone. This larger group, this large group of laity supported by the court of the Presbyterian Church, six other denominations, and the richest man in the world, John D. Rockefeller, they decided together, after studying the issue, that Christian missionaries needed to get rid of the premise that Christianity was exclusively true. And folks, if we don't believe that people are going to hell without Christ, what's the point of missions? Yet it had come to that. 
We pray for the lost. We evangelize the lost. And we labor to make the gospel clear to the lost. Why? Why do we do that? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, is Peter being imperialistic about Christianity? He's just being truthful with what it's about. This is God's truth, God's message. How dare we seek to alter it or soft pedal it or just outright deny it? If we don't agree with Acts 4.12, let us confess to the world we're not Christians. You see, if that committee was honest, they should have come back to the court and said, hey, we all discovered something. We're not Christians and we're going to stay home and watch football from now on. And uh, listen to what Machen did in response to this report on missions. Quote, Machen pursued the present issue by filing an overture in his presbytery, the New Brunswick Presbytery. Machen proposed the following points. The first uh, two follow in full. One, take, to, to take care to elect to positions on the mission board of foreign missions only persons who are fully aware of the danger in which the church stands and who are determined to insist upon such truths as the full truthfulness of Scripture, the virgin birth of our Lord, his substitutionary death as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, his bodily resurrection and his miracles as being essential to the word of God and our standards and as being necessary to the message which every missionary under our church shall proclaim. Can you believe there are people on the foreign board who didn't think the Bible was true, who didn't believe in the virgin birth, who didn't believe in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, who did not believe he'd risen from the dead and didn't believe he'd ever done any miracles. Number two, to instruct the board of foreign missions that no one who denies the absolute necessity of accepting such truths by every candidate for the ministry can possibly be regarded as competent to occupy the position. <laughs> as a result of Machen's overture, the New Brunswick Presbytery brought in uh, a guy, I picture Spear, his last name was Spear, as a, a guy that wore you know, a jacket and had like elbow patches and a pipe and they brought in this guy to this presbytery meeting to have a little debate with Machen. And in the words of another Machen biographer, Daryl Hart, the contest fizzled with Machen being accused of nitpicking. While Spear was lauded for taking the high road of Christian unity. It said Spear on the floor of presbytery and everybody just loved this. Not by suspicion and strife, but by confidence and concord is the great work of our Redeemer to be done in the world by those of us who love him. That's the way it always goes. It always goes that way. Listen to me. False doctrine will always cry intolerance. They'll always say peace and unity. Oh, you're being divisive. You're being unloving. You're being mean. You guys are doctrinal hatchet men. Because false doctrine can only survive when it doesn't get scrutinized. People use sentimentalism, emotion, emotional stories to shut down critical thought. It worked in 1923. And guess what? It still works in 2023. The Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, gird up the loins of your mind. Think clearly about stuff. Don't let people cloud your judgment with emotion and with sentiment. Don't let people shut your brain off by using emotion. When doctrinal disputes happen about essential truths of the Christian faith and you start hearing cries for tolerance and unity and we don't like your tone, 
Your tone is offending me. Your tone's hurting my feelings. And you hear about unity and peace. I want to watch. I want to warn you. Watch out. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't be taken in by the smooth words of flattery. You know that very kind of thing that Spear did that was done by guys on the floor of the PCA? That's addressed directly in Scripture. We're warned about that very thing. Romans 16, 17. Listen to God's word, please. Paul said, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. The gospel of Jesus is an exclusive truth. And without explicit faith in Christ, people perish in their sins and hell forever. The day we no longer believe that, and we are no longer willing to stand for and to die for that truth, let's just stay home with Spear and the guys and watch football. Last passage, real quick, 1 Timothy 2.5. You turn over to that one real quick. 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. Wonderful passage. This passage was used a lot by our Reformed forefathers. They quoted this constantly. Against the cult of Mary, the cult of the saints, the cult of the papacy, all that stuff. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus I remember reading a, an explanation of this by a Jesuit, a Roman Catholic Jesuit, who said, well, the, the Greek word one, heis, just means first or primary. Okay, so, there, so when there's one God, that, that's just first or primary God. <laughs> and one meteor, first or primary meteor. No, I, I assure you there's only one God. He's not the first or primary God. He, there's just one God, okay? Well, why, why would someone even suggest something like that? Because they don't believe in sola scriptura. You don't believe in soul scriptura? You'll believe absurdities all day long. It's such a glorious truth. There's only one God man. There's only one who is both fully divine and fully human, who is able to be the mediator between God and man, able to stand between God and sinners and bring those believing sinners into fellowship with God. The man, Christ Jesus. Just as surely as there is only one God, there is one mediator between God and man, one Savior, one Redeemer. There can no more be more mediators and redeemers than there can be more gods. One God, one mediator. One way of salvation. One name under heaven. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And finally this evening, point number five in your outline there, <clears throat> when Solus Christus is denied. St. Alphonsus Liguri wrote a book called The Glories of Mary. And before I read you a few quotations from it, you need to know that its author... Alphonsus Liguri is a saint. He's a saint. That means he was so holy, so righteous, he didn't have to spend any time in purgatory, went straight to heaven. He is also what's called a doctor of the church. There's only 42 of those in the Roman Catholic Church. Through 2,000 years of history, 42 doctors of the church. And you, you earn that title when you're someone who has incredible insight and is a great teacher of the church. You see how I'm setting this up here for you? Okay, this book, The Glories of Mary, the glories of Mary. This book has gone through 800 editions and translated into many languages. <clears throat> I'm gonna read a few quotations from it to show you what happens when Sola Scriptura is denied, which it is with great passion by Roman Catholicism and her theologians, converts, and apologists. This is also what happens uh, when the fruit of denying Sola Scriptura comes to full fruition. 
When you deny Sola Scriptura, you will eventually have a total denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a frontal attack on the precious biblical truths that we have just walked through, that Christ alone saves, that Christ alone is the way of salvation, and that Christ alone's name is the only one given to men by which we must be saved. That is the explicit, clear, emphatic, repetitious teaching of the written God-breathed scriptures. And I want you to compare what we just looked at in John 14.6 and Acts 4.12 and 1 Timothy 2.5 with the insights of this canonized saint, this doctor of the church of Rome. He wrote this, quote, It is the will of God that all graces should come to us by the hands of Mary. Meaning that the plenitude of grace was in Christ as the head from which it flows, as from its source, and in Mary, as in the neck through which it flows. For in all dangers thou canst obtain salvation of this glorious virgin. All graces are dispensed by Mary, and all who are saved are saved only by the means of this divine mother. It is upon preaching Mary and exciting all to confidence in her intercession. The praise of Mary is an inexhaustible fount. The more it is enlarged, the fuller it gets. And the more you fill it with so much, so much more, the more it is enlarged. That if all the tongues of men were put together, and even if each of their members was changed into a tongue, they would not suffice to praise her as much as she deserves. And never lose an opportunity, either in public or in private, of enkindling in the hearts of others those blessed flames of love with which they themselves burn toward their beloved queen. That to honor this queen of angels is to gain eternal life. It's hard to read this. That that is the rankest blasphemy you could possibly think of. Honoring the Virgin Mary is how you gain eternal life? He goes on, that this most gracious lady will honor in the next world those who honor her in this. Rejoice, my soul, and be glad in her. For many good things are prepared for those who praise her. And Liguri says that the whole of the sacred scriptures speak of, in praise of Mary. The devout Thomas Akempis represents to us Mary um, as recommending a soul who had, been, uh, who had honored her to her son and saying, my most loving son, have mercy on the soul of this servant of thine who loved and extolled me. That as the most sacred womb of Mary was the means of salvation for sinners, the hearing of her praises must necessarily convert them. So if we go out and praise and worship Mary, the whole world will be converted. And thus must also be a means of their salvation. And then just a couple more sentences. Oh, blessed are they who bind themselves with love and confidence to these two anchors of salvation, Jesus and Mary. Certainly they will not be lost. Let us love Jesus and Mary and become saints. We can neither expect nor hope anything better. And I'll stop there. Many more quotations could be read. The book, The Glories of Mary, is the most vile example of blasphemy I have in my entire library. Like, I have a heresy bookshelf. Hers is, this, this one's above this one. These quotations I've read to you, just by the way, are just from the introduction. The chapter titles after this are Mary, our queen, our mother. Mary, our life, our sweetness. Mary, our hope. Mary, our mediatress. Mary, our advocate. Remember 1 John 2, 1? My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate is a divine title. And they're saying, Mary, our advocate. Mary, our guardian. Mary, our salvation. Is this a big deal? 
this a big deal? Let's allow the word of God to have the last word after all this morbid idolatry. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I pro- uh, proclaim to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't preach Mary. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Who saves us? Who is the only way to the Father? And whose name is salvation found? Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man and two distinct natures and one person forever. So that's solus Christus, Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he is our only Savior. He is, his is the only name by which we can be saved. His righteousness alone can avail for us on the day of judgment. His cross alone, his suffering alone, is what satisfies divine justice against our sins. Lord, it's all or nothing when it comes to what your word says about Christ and about our calling as Christians. It's all or it's nothing. We either believe it or we do not. Lord, may our hearts love these truths Rest upon them. These are not just idle words. These promises and these words that you've given to us from our Lord and his exclusive hold upon the truth and the way of salvation, these are our life, our eternal life. So help us to stand for them and to shine their light to those around us that others might come to know him as their way, their truth, and their life as well. We ask in Christ's name, amen.